Join me in prayer one more time before we get into God's word. Gracious God, I thank you once again for this blessed worship day and um, all that we've done, uh, even starting from Sunday school and our fellowship hour and uh, this time of praise and singing and giving and prayer. So grateful, God, for your word. And I pray that it will come through clearly uh, today through me uh, and speak to each of our hearts today, those that you've brought here uh, to our church and those who are listening online And we're grateful, God, uh, to have the special and added blessing of observing the Lord's table. And I pray that um, this will lead um, aptly and fittingly into that that wonderful time of blessing. And so, God, we pray that you'd be exalted, Christ would be lifted up, and uh, we're grateful for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, today is Sunday, as is obvious to each of us. And those of you who know me know that I call Sunday the first and best day of the week. And um, it's the best day because we get to come together as a church body and we get to worship a great God, as Tony was praying, the one true living God. Um, How many times uh, do we get to come together with fellow brothers and sisters and sing like we do and, and, and take part in music and take part in prayer and hear the word? Um, these, these times, 52 shots we get per year. And so, uh, we're grateful. We're grateful for Sunday. And, um, we're celebrating and commemorating our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one and only Savior who was crucified to death and buried on Good Friday. And the only reason that we can call it good is because he didn't stay in the grave. He rose again three days later. On which day? Sunday. A glorious Sunday morning. So Sunday is the best day of the week in my heart, at least in my mind. Um, But the other reason I call today the first and best day of the week is to simply acknowledge that it is the first day of the week. Uh, Like many other people before I became a Christian, in my mind and life back then, Sunday was the last day of the week. It was part of the weekend. Hey, Monday to me was the start of the week, right? Whether I was in school or in the work world, Monday was the beginning, the start, the first day of the new week. And so today, um, we get to look at the actual last day of the week. It's not Sunday. It's the seventh day. It's day seven, Saturday, as we continue in our sermon series of Genesis 1 through 11, God's story of beginnings. We're in part six now of creation here. And uh, our ongoing study of the creation story, I pray, has been a blessing to everyone. This is God's revelation in the book of Genesis. It's the literally the only source of what happened at the beginning of the world. It's the only true source that tells us what happened in the beginning. And so if you'll turn in your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 2, we're going to be in verses 1 to 3 today. I'm not going to read the text yet, but I will give you the sermon theme. And if you want to look uh, in, your, um, in your bulletin, the sermon theme and the outline points are written in there for you. But the, the big idea of the theme today is that the seventh day of creation is a glorious reminder and memorial that God created the entire universe in six days. And it sets the pattern and rhythm for human life to flourish. And this is all by God's design and purpose, right? So um, that's the, the theme. I want to just lay that out for you. 
Today we're going to talk about the importance and uniqueness of day seven. Some of us might think of day seven as ah, not much that, to talk about and, you know, it'll be a super short sermon and uh, it's kind of boring, right? Day seven, God just rested. But uh, there's actually a lot that goes into it. So um, once again, we do have a lot to do, so I want to get right into it. Um, uh, although there are a couple preliminaries uh, before we get to the text, which I think are very important. Okay. So first, going back to verse 31 of chapter one, this is part of the introduction. So if you're writing... Um, you're going to run out of room there because we didn't leave much room. But verse 31 says, God saw all that he had made and behold, it was what? Very good. Very good. After six days, right? There was evening and there was morning the sixth day. All of creation was called very good. And it highlights the crown of creation, which is man, believe it or not, us, man and women, right? But includes everything that God made on days one through six. He called it very good. So what does that mean? Well, if it hasn't been brought to your attention yet or hasn't dawned on you yet in part six of our creation series, um, it implies that there was no disease, no suffering, no violence, no death. And for God to say that after day six, it was all very good, It means none of those things were in existence. There was no sin, right, which brought all this into the world in the first place. Romans 5, 12, right? And so the fossil record reveals that suffering and violence and disease and death existed, has existed already. So it must have come about after the first six days of creation or the creation week, right? It happened after the fall of Adam and Eve. So I'm just saying this to let you know that it did not happen during a gap of millions of years in between verse 1 and 2 of Genesis 1. It didn't happen during long eras of time, according to the day-age theory, right? According to those theories, death had been occurring for thousands or millions or billions of years on the earth. Okay, before or even during the creation week. Okay, so it would not be called very good if disease and suffering and violence and death uh, was happening for all those millennia or even those, those millions of, of years. Okay, so that's one thing. The second thing, I mean, we've come to the end of the creation week and there's been no mention of angels. I don't think I mentioned angels this whole past um, several weeks. Perhaps some of you had a question about that, as many people do. But our first verse in chapter 2 says, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts. In other words, everything that God created in the universe was completed, including angelic beings. A host could mean angelic beings. It could mean just everything that God created, which includes angels. So we know for sure that angels are created. They are immortal they're immortal, but they had a beginning. They, didn't, they are not eternal like God is. They had a beginning, a start. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him, it's talking about Jesus, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. This refers to angels and different levels of authorities that angels have. Okay, all things have been created through him and for him. 
Okay, so whether it's material or immaterial, physical or spiritual, visible or invisible, all things were created through and for Jesus Christ. And he's the preeminent supreme one over all creation. He's not like the creation. He's way over it, right? So when were all these angels created? When were they created? Well, Genesis 1 does not tell us specifically when, nor do any other texts in the Bible. Okay, we do know that they were created before the fall of man, which is coming up in Genesis chapter 3, right? Because who shows up in Genesis 3 all of a sudden? Satan, who is a fallen what? Fallen angel, right? So angels are already in existence by that time. <clears throat> we also know from the verse that I just read in Genesis 2, verse 1, part of our text today, that God's work of creation was completed, which is our first point today. Okay? Angels must have been made sometime during creation week, because he said everything in the heavens and the earth, all their hosts were completed. But there's not much more information in Scripture to tell us when. Okay? The only hint or clue comes from Job chapter 38. You can jot that one down if you want. Job 38, verses 4 through 7. You recall that God appears suddenly to Job, and he asks him, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements, since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Job 38. And so it appears that angels who are called morning stars and sons of God were witness to some of God's work during his creation week. And they shouted for joy. They sang together in response to this amazing creative work of God. They were present to rejoice and sing as God lays the foundations of the earth. And foundations of the earth, by the way, could mean the earth itself, right, which God made on day one, or it possibly could mean the dry land, okay, which God made on day three. So it seems angels were created either on day one or day three. I lean towards day one because as I read scripture, it appears to me that angels were primarily created to worship and praise God. Okay, they're also created to, as ministering spirits to men, to us. But primarily, they're created to worship and praise God. And so I think that um, they were created probably on day one. It seems fitting that they'd be rejoicing and worshiping when God started the whole thing from the beginning. So I can't say that for certain, but we really don't have much more to go on besides that. Right? Apparently God didn't think it was all that important for us to know specifically when angels were made. So um, without a doubt, though, he wants us to know that he himself is the creator of all things, visible, invisible, material, immaterial. This includes the spirit world of angels. So... God does deem important, as I mentioned before, um, day seven. It is important. It is unique. And so I do want to read the text now, uh, Genesis 2, verses 1 to 3. And so uh, if you're able to stand for these brief moments while I read this, we just want to respect God's word. Genesis 2, 1 to 3, this is where we're going to be this morning. It says, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts... By the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, 
And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Please be seated. So I I want you to notice uh, a few differences about day seven as compared to the other six days. Hey, there's some things that uh, you might have noticed even as I read it, um, and we, we just studied the last six days this last several weeks. Look, there's no familiar creation refrain. Did you get that? Uh, then God said, and God made, right? Every other of the days, it, it repeats that same refrain. No forming or filling described for day seven, okay? Days one through six, I said that there's parallels, right? The light, day one, luminaries, day four, seas and skies, day two, fish and birds on day five, and the land and the vegetation on day three, and the land animals and man on day six, right? There's a lot going on there, but parallels. And then all of a sudden, day seven stands all by itself, okay? And it's called the seventh day. It's repeated three times in these three verses, okay? Not just once. Every other day, day one through six, one time. First day, a second day, a third day. Here it's repeated three times, the seventh day. That's number seven, this is that number of completion, number of fulfillment, number of perfection in the Bible. Blessed it. Hey, this is the only day that God blessed specifically. Hey, before he blessed animals and he blessed man, which we talked about, but he didn't bless any of the days particularly. And lastly, it says that he sanctified it. And this is the first word of the first use of the word holy in the Bible. Kadesh. God made it holy. He declared it holy. Okay, there's, there's technical Hebrew uh, forms there in the grammar, but it means that he set it apart and he cut it off from the other days. There's something very unique. All right, and we're going to talk about that as we get into our, our points here. All right, so the sermon theme, once again, the seventh day of creation is a glorious memorial and reminder that God created the entire universe in six days. And it sets the pattern and rhythm for human life to flourish by God's design. So we have three points here today highlighting the uniqueness of day seven. The first one is in verses one and two, that God completed his work. He completed his work. That first verse in chapter two summarizes the creation week and the whole opening chapter of, of the Bible, of Genesis. Everything that God created was finished, completed at the end of six days. The heavens and the earth, right? It's the Hebrew phrase for the entire universe. They don't have one word in, in Hebrew to describe the entire universe, but it is the heavens and the earth and all their hosts, like I said, everything that God created in it, including angels. Um, verse 2 says, By the seventh day God completed his work. Uh, as if to make sure that it was clear what he said in verse 1. It's repeated. That's emphasis. Completed. That verb is used twice. It emphasizes that everything was done. There's no further creative work. Okay, nothing that God forgot. He didn't leave anything out. Nothing slipped his mind. Creation was his work. Elohim God. The almighty triune God's completed work. There was nothing else to be added. It was all done in those amazing first six days. So to reiterate one last time for us um, regarding the issue of young earth versus old earth, 
Okay, young earth being, we believe that the earth is thousands of years old rather than millions or billions of years old as school and so-called science and all the media um, promotes. The Bible simply says that God created the world in six days. Modern science teaches that the universe is billions of years old and it took eons to create. So both of those things cannot be true. We've pointed out the main arguments, mainly from the text, of why we believe the universe is young rather than old. And God created everything in six literal days. And I'm just going to quickly go through them once again with you. And there's like six reasons here. First is the days in Genesis 1 are numbered, right? First day, second day, third day, they're ordinals. Anytime that's a, that's a feature that's found only with regular 24-hour days. Anytime you read in the Bible, when it attaches a number with day, it means just a regular, normal day. Also, the days in Genesis 1 are each described as there was evening and there was morning. And each one of those six days, this is unique to 24-hour days in Scripture. Also, the third reason, Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11 Hey, along with Exodus 31, verse 17, you want to kind of just have that in your mind. It clearly compares the six days of creation with the six days of a literal work week. Yeah, I won't read the whole passage to you, but verse 11 in Exodus 20, which is where the Ten Commandments are found, right? This is the fourth commandment to keep the Sabbath day holy to Israel. It says in verse 11, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Okay, so Moses is not talking about God is not talking about days there where it could mean millions and millions of years. Okay, it's very, very obvious in the context and just uh, compared with Genesis one and the rest. So fourth reason is contrary to popular opinion, there is actual scientific evidence that supports a young earth, okay, an earth that is roughly 10,000 years old or so. Okay, as Henry Morris and others have pointed out, all the data of rocks and the fossil records are much better explained in terms of a global flood, which we're going to get to in Genesis 6 through 9. And so we'll get into that more um, at that time. But there is actual scientific evidence supporting a young earth. Fifth, if the days of Genesis 1 are actually long ages of time and natural processes were occurring throughout all, all of that, all of those eons, how could vegetation and plants and trees survive for all those millions of years without the sun? And how does plant and tree life reproduce without birds and animals, etc.? I mean, we could go on with, as far as um, the arguments and everything like that, but just something to think about uh, as far as uh, what the other theories are, are saying. And lastly is the theological problem I already mentioned, is that there was no death, there was no sin, there was no violence, there was no suffering until after the creation week. Okay, and so, um, it, and it's through man that that sin entered into the world, and death through sin. Okay, so there was not death going on throughout the entire creation week. Um, it happened after that. Okay, so very shortly, that was uh, our reasons. So when you think about creation being completed, as our text in verse one and two here says twice, it was all done, all completed, all finished. Remember, there's only three basic options we have when we think about creation. It's evolution or theistic evolution, which I was just talking about, Old Earth and Tim Keller and Hugh Ross and many, many, many other even Christian people buying into. And then there's special creation 
or called divine creation, which we hold to and which we affirm, which we teach, which we believe here at Faith Bible Church. And so um, this is a conviction from the text. It is the minority position in the you know world of Christianity. And yet we hold fast to it because we believe that's the most faithful interpretation of the Bible. So it says again, the, the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts by the seventh day, God completed it. And part of the big point made by that verb completed is that the universe is no longer in a process of being created. As uh, the old Looney Tunes said, hey, that's all, folks. It's done. It's finished. It is completed. And God called it very good. So our second point, as far as the uniqueness of day seven, is that God ceased from his work. God ceased from his work. It says there in verse two, second part of verse two, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Verse three, he blessed it and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. So that word rested in your outline point, And as I just said, I said ceased, right? It's the Hebrew verb Shabbat. And one of the main definitions of that Hebrew word is to cease or to stop or to put an end to. Hey, the, that's the root verb of the, the noun Sabbath that was given later to national Israel. Hey, the day that they were to set aside as holy to rest. So what did God rest from? What did God cease? What did God stop or put an end to? Well, it says all his work, all his creative work of the previous six days. So was God just, you know, super tired and he needed rest? From all his work. Hey, after all, it was a whole six days in a row. Hey, that's 144 hours straight. Obviously not. He didn't get tired. An omnipotent creator God who, who made all the billions of galaxies and the billions of stars in each of those billions of galaxies and all the planets and the earth and the seas and everything that's in the earth and the seas and all it contains, um, he could have done it at the snap of a finger, right? But he chose to do it in six days. And God is not limited in strength or power or energy. Isaiah 40, verse 28, asked this question, right? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired, The very next verse in Isaiah 40 says that he's the one who gives strength to those who are weary. Psalm 121 verse 4 says, Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Psalm 127, right, says that he gives to his beloved, to his blessed, even in their sleep. So God is not like us. He doesn't need a break time. He doesn't need an afternoon nap. Hey, I get wiped out just playing basketball with my with my sons or just running around the block a few times, a couple of miles in the morning, hey, which reminds me of an old Chinese proverb. A man who runs in front of a car gets tired, often gets tired, but a man who runs behind a car gets exhausted. 
So rested is better understood as, or along with ceased. Okay, I want you to get that. That's why that's in your outline today. It means that he stopped his work. He looked at his creation at the end of day six. That's just very good. And uh, what a contrast the seventh day is to those first six days. Okay, There's a lot going on days one through six. On day seven, instead of more creating, there was Shabbat. There was rest. There was stopping. Instead of more doing, God ceased from doing on the seventh day. And this was not for nothing, of course. Hey, God has a purpose. God has a plan. It was a purposeful stop. I will read Exodus 20, uh, starting in verse 8 right now. I read verse 11, but Exodus 20 is the, the fourth of Ten Commandments, right? Verse 8 says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. Verse 11, For in six days the Lord made the heaven, heavens and the earth and the sea all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. All right, notice, notice folks, this is very important. God's creation week pattern, work week pattern was the basis for his law to who? To Israel. Okay? It wasn't to Adam or really to anyone from Adam to Moses. Okay? God commanded Israel not to do any work on the Sabbath, the seventh day of the week, which is Saturday, right? The last day. Why is that? Again, verse 11, because in six days, that's what God did. He created everything, and on the seventh, he ceased, he rested. So because God stopped from work that day, the Israelites, his chosen people, were also to cease, stop their work on the Sabbath. Exodus 31:17 says that the Sabbath is a sign between God and the sons of Israel forever. Okay? God and Israel, not God and the church. Okay, Colossians 2.16, in case anyone's unclear on that, um, New Testament, right, New Covenant, Colossians 2, verse 16, Paul writing to the believers in Colossae, it says, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a what? A Sabbath day. Okay, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Okay, there's freedom in Christ to continue observing the Sabbath, or not. Paul is telling the believers in the church there, don't let anyone judge you about these things. Okay, notice too, the fourth commandment is the only one of the Ten Commandments that's not repeated in the New Testament. All the other ones are. So what does that mean for us as Christians, as the church? Okay, we're not required, we're not commanded to observe the Sabbath. Uh, And again, nor was Adam and Eve uh, or anyone until the time of the Exodus. But, and this is a very important, but very important. However, the teaching of the New Testament is clear. We are instructed and called and commanded to faithfully worship at church. If you're a Christian, you're to be at church on Sunday. Hebrews 10.25 says, Not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. 
Hebrews 10.25. The pattern that's established by the early Christians as we read scripture was to gather together for worship and fellowship on Sunday, which is the first and best day of the week, everyone. Our life habit and pattern and desire should be to set Sundays apart for church, to prioritize Sundays for corporate worship, special focus on God, on Jesus Christ, out of loving devotion and service to our resurrected Lord. That much should be clear. Uh, I don't, I'm, I'm hesitant to call this the, the Christian Sabbath. I think that's confusing, not helpful, and it turns into like a, a legalistic kind of thing. Um, even though there's some kind of parallels and similarities with uh, God's command to Israel, it's not the same. Christians are not bound by the Old Covenant ceremonial laws and restrictions and regulations. Um, all the Old Covenant laws were fulfilled by Christ, who brings in the New Covenant by his sacrificial death and his blood. Jesus is now our true rest. Okay, Hebrews 4, verse 10. Listen, Hebrews 4.10 says, For the one who has entered his rest, he's talking about Christians, Christians who have entered Jesus' rest, has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Hebrews 4.10. Jesus is our Sabbath rest. He's the one we rest in for our salvation. We'll get to that uh, a little bit more at the end. All that said, God has given us New Testament Christians clear instruction and calling regarding the Lord's Day, Sunday. Actually, every day is the Lord's Day, right? And every day is worship. But there's something special about Sunday. There's something special about the body, the church family, coming together in corporate worship, assembling together in obedience and prioritization to God's word and to God himself. We are to set aside Sunday to rest from our normal work so we can prioritize God, gather with fellow Christians at church, seek how we can stir one another up to love and good deeds, Hebrews 10.24, worship, fellowship, instruction, service, encouragement, and prayer. So, so important. Hopefully that's all clear. And I just want to add one more thing here. Okay, additionally, about the, the seven day, seventh day and about um, the creation week. We should understand that the seven-day creation week also established a pattern and rhythm for all of human life to flourish. It's part of our theme today, right? Um, it established a pattern for human life to flourish. As one pastor writes, quote, God made us in his image, and he programmed us so that we thrive best under a pattern of work and rest that closely parallels his activities during creation week. One day of rest in seven is an ideal ratio. People quickly show signs of fatigue when they miss that one day of rest per week. And productivity also suffers when the work week is shortened, end quote. I agree. Uh, back in the days of the French Revolution, this was in the late 1700s, there were uh, atheistic leaders uh, leading that whole thing. And they tried a 10-day work week for a while. It didn't last long at all. And in, in modern times, uh, I've heard just in, in recent years of uh, some companies trying to shorten the work week to four days. Four-day work week, 10 hours a day. Uh, it hasn't really caught on, hasn't really become popular and, and been a thing. Um, in any case, just uh, I think for us, if I'm just going to give you a quick uh, application, 
we tend towards either laziness okay, and sloth and, and not working hard and, you know, um, just kind of default that way, some of us. And then other, others of us default by being workaholics and working too much and prioritizing work over more important things. And so um, those are two ways we can uh, err and even sin. And we want to be thinking about that, considering that uh, even today as we go before the Lord's table uh, about our life, about our life. And maybe we'll expand on that when we get to um, the curse, right, in Genesis chapter 3. But I just wanted to mention that real quickly. Uh, And as we cap this point, the days of creation are the basis for the universal observance of a seven-day week. And and most of us here in in America, in this blessed country, are actually doubly blessed in that you get two days off, right? Saturday and Sunday each week. Uh, What an opportunity that is, if if that's you, uh, to pause and to refresh, to reflect on God's creation, reflect on God himself, to stop and smell the roses, as they say, in admiration and thanksgiving to God, for his incredible power and his amazing creativity and just looking around at nature that he made. Okay, to think that he made all of this, even the entire universe, so that we humans who are made in his image according to his likeness would have such a, a lavish care environment, okay, this planet for us to live on. So, leads us to our last point. This one's the shortest. God completed his work. He ceased from his work. And I'm just getting these points from the verbs here in the, the text. Verse 3 says, God blessed and sanctified day 7. As I mentioned before, God didn't bless specifically any of the other six days, but here he blesses the seventh day. And he sanctified it. He hallowed it. And it was to be unique from the other days. In that, it was blessed by God as a memorial, as a reminder of the glories of the creation, and more importantly, to point us to and reflect the unsurpassed glory of the the one who made it all. Every single week that goes by is a cue for us that God created the world in six days and he rested on the seventh. Believe it or not, that's the truth. And think about this. There's really no other reason whatsoever why our calendars are ordered by weeks. Okay, my trusty planner, my daily, weekly, yearly planner, which I can barely live without, okay, it's, it's ordered by weeks. Every seventh day, every Saturday that occurs is simply a notice that God is the creator of the world. And it's a permanent, glorious reminder of that truth. Just like verse 3 says, because in it, in, in it, in day seven, he rested, he ceased from all his work, which God had created and made. So I hope that we've seen and we can appreciate the uniqueness of day seven. Um, I want to give some concluding thoughts here uh, to lead us into communion. And some have made um, and pointed out some interesting contrasts uh, between the seventh day, Saturday, we, we might call it the Sabbath, um, and the Lord's Day, Sunday. Okay? The, the seventh day is a memorial of God's creation, as we've been saying. But the Lord's Day remembers his redemption. 
Okay? Saturday, seventh day, we remember his creation. You might say on Sunday we remember especially his redemption or his recreation. Okay? The, the fact that there's, there's, there can be new birth in Christ and the Savior. Another thing, the seventh day reminds us that God's work of creation is mind-blowingly great. I hope that's, you know, just, uh, that's become clear to all of us. But the Lord's Day shows us that God's work of redemption is even greater than that. Even greater. Both are miracles, right? Everything that happened in day, the first week of the world was a, a miracle of God. But the miracle of redemption of souls is forever. Right? It's for eternity. Heaven and earth, as Jesus said, will pass away. But redemption of souls is forever. Also, the seventh day shows the unfathomable wisdom of God in making us. The Lord's day shows his unsurpassed wisdom and grace in saving us. And it's kind of uh, overlapping with the first one. Consider this, that it costs more for God to redeem us than to create us. This creation involved God speaking a word, right? Psalm 148 says he commanded and they were created. But redemption involves shedding of blood. 1 Peter 1.19, it says, with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb, without blemish, without spot. So in creation, we have life in Adam, who is called the first Adam, in redemption, we have new life in Jesus Christ, who's called the second Adam. In creation, God gave us ourselves. In redemption, he gave us himself. Hebrews chapter 4, I mentioned verse 10 before, uh, just a little bit ago. And um, this is, this is going to lead us into our communion time. I'm just going to read this wonderful passage. Hebrews chapter 4, you can jot it down, verses 1 through 11. Listen to this. It says, therefore, let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, that any one of you may seem to have come short of it, should fear if you have not come to rest in Christ yet. Verse 2 says, for indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them. Why? because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said, God has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Verse 6, therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day. Today, saying through David after so long a time, just as has been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. This is an invitation for anyone who has not placed their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation to come now. Come to repent of your sins and believe in Jesus and his sacrifice, his death, his taking your sins for you on the cross so that you could escape God's wrath and judgment forever by placing your trust and belief in Jesus alone. This is the invitation. 
And Jesus is the only living Savior. He rose from the grave. This is what we celebrate on Easter Sunday, Resurrection Day, that Jesus is the living Savior. If you put your faith in him, you have no fear of death. The sting of death is gone. You have the promise of eternal life. It's a gift. You can't work for it. You can't earn it. You can't go to church more. You can't give more to the church. You can't just do good things or feel good in your heart like a sincere, good, moral person. None of that is enough to earn you heaven. But Jesus, his death, his sacrifice on the cross for you has, has accomplished it all. He's accomplished salvation for you, eternal life and forgiveness of all your sins. Trust in him. And so it says, verse 9, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Verse 10, which I read before. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Lastly, verse 11, therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. Fellow Christians, it's a call to, to be faithful. To be believing, not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word, right? Not faith without works, but faith that produces works. And so, Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14. What a blessed passage. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, every single one of our sins having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And that's what Jesus meant when he said, on the cross, it is finished. It is finished. The work that needed to be done to accomplish salvation for sinners who could not get there on their own, Jesus said, it is finished. I paid the debt. It's done. So I think that's a fitting way for us to enter into the Lord's table.